Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Elaine and Diane are certified coaches with personal experience raising children with challenges such as ADHD, anxiety, and more, and extensive experience in guiding parents to raise their complex kids with confidence and calm. On the podcast, Elaine and Diane interview experts, bringing you cutting-edge information about your child's challenges, teach you real-life strategies to create lasting change, and demonstrate how coaching can guide you to parent your complex kids one conversation at a time. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. Um, Diane and I are here today with Dr. Mark Burton, who is a friend and a colleague and a mentor and somebody we've known for a long time, since before we were even like official in this realm. Before we were born. That right. sounds really funny. <laughs> now he's younger we than born. we are, so it doesn't go far that far back. Yeah. No, that's true. But Mark, thanks for being here. We are so happy to have you here. It is always great to be here. Good to see you guys after all this time. So Yeah, I know we're looking forward. We were just talking earlier about looking forward to being together in person at the at the next conference in 2022, at the next international conference on ADHD. And fingers hopeful crossed. that it yeah. will be live. Yeah. So you want to get started, Di? Yeah, no, Mark, we don't do bios because bios are boring and we'll have all the, the details and stuff yeah, in the in the totally show notes. notes. But yep. like the place to kick off, I think, is how did you get into this, you know, this space? How did you get started supporting parents and, and well and in what kids? capacity? And, yeah. In what capacity? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two parts to that answer. You know, in terms of just how I got into this field as a whole, it really comes down to um I just really grew up immersed in it and it became uh, it was a big part of my life, even starting going all the way back to like middle school, high school, both in, in two different ways. My family is very involved in it, like everyone around me are special education teachers. And then also when I was going through kind of challenging times in high school, one of the things that helped me sort of find myself again was uh, a lot of volunteer work at the Special Olympics that just coincidentally a neighbor ran. So that's how I sort of knew I was going to start working with kids in some capacity. And then um, the second big piece of it, which I think is how part of how we met too, is that what, what later happened is unrelated to that is when I was in residency, somebody introduced me to mindfulness practice, which I don't want to talk about. I feel like I end up, I love talking about it and it ends up talking, I end up talking about it an awful lot, but I found it really, really helpful and was really for the most part, just practicing my own as a way of sustaining myself. And then went to a couple of conferences where the science of sort of uh, mindfulness, which is, you know, I don't know if we have time today. It's, it's so much more than the cliche, you know, it really right. is very reality-based dealing with what's challenging in life. And I started going to the conferences, talking about the science of it and realized I was doing all this work with families and parents are often so sort of overlooked in the dynamic when we're talking about kids who have difficulties at school. And it's such a, you know, deeply challenging situation. And it just suddenly just like, the light bulb went on really in one weekend at a conference. So sort of just realized like, okay, you know, this mindfulness stuff would be absolutely perfect for helping parents navigate all the challenges that are going on in all these very complex situations. So then the second answer to your question is I started integrating more and more mindfulness and parent supports into my clinical care, working with families with lots of developmental differences. 
So I want to go back just a little bit because there's yeah. this huge leap you took. That, there is. I mean, people yeah. don't really realize, a lot of people don't even know what a developmental pediatrician is. So you're not just sure. a pediatrician, you're a pediatrician who specializes in what we call complex yeah. kids. So um, what got you there? Well, I mean, that is the special education piece of my background. And I really initially thought there's, I'll answer that question as I, I guess I'll do it chronologically. I mean, I always assumed initially once I went into medicine that I would do general pediatrics with just kind of my own personal interest in, you know, being a general pediatrician who supported families with more complex needs. And then for a lot of reasons, I didn't really feel like that was a fit for me. I mostly, I just wanted to give more time. You know, there isn't a lot of time for that in general pediatrics. Right. So developmental pediatrics is a subspecialty of pediatrics, just like cardiology is a subspecialty of pediatrics. So if you want to be a pediatric cardiologist, you do three years of general pediatrics, and then you go back and study the heart. So my field of behavioral developmental pediatrics is uh, the same concept. You do general pediatrics first, and then you do a fellowship specializing just in what augments child development, you know, working, support general child development, working with children who have struggles in different aspects of child development. And it's sort of an odd field a little bit in that it's a mm -hmm. bit of... Um, you know, pulling together several different things. So I definitely do some direct management of um, a lot of different things, an awful lot of ADHD care, but it's also a lot of playing the role of just helping parents um, follow the big picture over time. So I do a lot of supervising school plans, you know, parent coaching, you know, working and coordinating all the different therapists and different specialists who are involved in, you know, in a, in a situation that requires a full team, for example. So there's part of what I'm doing is kind of helping coordinate and help take the pressure off of parents and kind of keep an eye on that long-term plan. And then parts of what I do during the day are much more direct intervention for things like uh, primarily ADHD. Right. Well, I, and I really appreciate that description because I think a lot of times people don't understand the distinction, you know, and we, depending on what state people are in, they, they might go to a pediatrician, a pediatric neurologist, or, or a developmental pediatrician for evaluation. And oftentimes they don't get to you until there's really been something identified that people have tried to treat for a while and mm -hmm. are struggling with. Is that accurate? No, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I do a lot of the initial evaluations too. So somebody's raised a concern about someone's, you know, classroom performance or or how they're socializing. And I do a lot of those types of initial evaluations. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of it is as a specialist are kids who have been, you know, through different types of interventions and care and then end up in a practice like mine. And I do think it's, you know, among the many things a developmental pediatrician could do, and it doesn't have to be a developmental pediatrician, you know, it could be a psychologist, could be, you know, could be a coach, could be, it just needs to be, it's really helpful to have somebody involved who has some continuity over time, who's kind of helping parents, you know, see um, how all the parts go together. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I see so many families where it's really a parent who's trying to hold on to that role. You know, you have a medical team over here and a school team over there, and maybe a couple of, you know, tutor or therapists you've seen outside of school over time. And often it's a parent playing that role, which is, you know, unavoidable to some degree, but it's not, you know, really what they're meant to be doing. You know, so a lot of what a developmental pediatrician can do is, is do that sort of, you know, be that hub of just coordinating all those different pieces and then providing parents with the information you know, they need to go back and, um, you know, and just interact with all those different specialists in different ways. So the question that's kind of coming up, but Elaine and I had a conversation with someone earlier in this week where we were looking at statistically, you know, what percentage of kids are diagnosed by which types of providers. 
And okay. I think the question that I want to ask is, you know, how do parents even know when do I need to go somewhere besides a pediatrician? When do I need to go to a specialist? What I mean, there's so many different kinds right. of subspecialties and things like that. Yep. And you you provided information about developmental pediatrics, but I think there's this bigger question. Mm-hmm. It is a huge question, and I wish it was more in the. Um, I actually coordinated an issue of um, Perspective Magazine for the International Dyslexia Society just right before the pandemic. And that, unfortunately, that I was in, actually. Was yeah, in. Oh, that's right. Elaine was part of it. And, um, and just coincidentally, they decided to like close the firewall, right? For that, they just, their model changed. So it's not, I don't know if that's open to the public, but that was the whole premise of the entire issue because it's so confusing. It's like, here are all the different fields. When would you want to seek out this field? And why, you know, why won't you go to this, you know, here versus there? So when it comes to evaluation, I think it's really most general pediatricians are acting more as just like a, um, as your general pediatrician. They're very, I mean, in extreme cases, I suppose, or I guess, depending on location in the country, there are people who might be making more specific developmental diagnoses. You know, like sometimes a general pediatrician can see and recognize and diagnose ADHD. But for the most part, your pediatrician is usually your coordinator and sort of getting you to the person who might do the evaluation. And that person is going to be different depending on what you're concerned about. And then it gets even, you know, this is why we wrote that whole issue is just then it gets even more confusing because there's such nuances for, you know, for example, most school districts won't diagnose ADHD or autism. You know, they'll just do the evaluation that kind of sets you up to go to somebody else who could do the actual diagnosis, which often is totally confusing. And then sometimes leads people thinking there wasn't a diagnosis made, you know, for a specific reason, you know, I did the school evaluation and they didn't say it was ADHD. So it must not be ADHD when it's just that on a policy level, the school psychologists often won't diagnose ADHD. Is that the uh, same for autism? Just curious. For the most part, I mean, this is where it gets so very often in early childhood, early intervention programs and CPSE, the preschool special education programs, will sometimes diagnose autism. Mm -hmm. And then for the school age evaluations, it would be pretty rare. So really what you end up is hopefully having somebody like your pediatrician to coordinate who in your community does this, you know, needing to get to the specialist who can really do two things, either make the diagnosis, you know, which is certainly something that you know, I can do as a developmental pediatrician, some neurologists do it, you know, some psychiatrists do it, neuropsychologists do it, depending on the issue. So, you know, depending on your community, there are people in the community doing evaluation that way. Occasionally, there might be something more medical going on. That's not really, you know, I, I was uh, trained in both and then I boarded in behavioral. So, behavioral. I don't do, yeah, I don't do the, I don't do the, really do the neurological side of it much in my practice. Um, so, you know, you need somebody who knows the local community. And then one of the bigger challenges is not every community, especially as you get more rural, um, has all the subspecialists so easily available. So, you know, just to, that was a lot I just said, but to narrow it down and just make it more concise, you know, you, you generally have some more medical diagnoses, which would be things like ADHD and often autism, you know, which would be more often, but not entirely a medical person making that diagnosis. Then you have in the middle of sort of that diagnosis, a lot of psychologists can make those diagnoses too. So depending on who you go to, it could be a psychologist who makes that diagnosis. And then on the other sort of end of educational evaluation, you have things like learning disabilities, which a school does sometimes label or diagnose but for learning disabilities, you know, if you need an independent evaluation, that most often is going to be a psychologist, not a physician. I hope I said that clearly. So, so it's yeah. sort of this array of 
possibilities based on your community and also this specific situation. I think the, the bullet point really way of saying it is you need your pediatrician or someone probably to help you coordinate. You, know, you need somebody you trust who can say, this is the person to go to around here to get it done quite often. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when we started this conversation and we were, we were kind of joking in advance that we never know what we're going to talk about because right. we, we get somebody in who really knows their stuff and then we, we see. And so what I love about this is we ended up talking about effectively, how do you know when you need a specialist or where do you go for diagnosis? So once someone comes to you and is working mm-hmm. with you, I want to go back to where you started, which is that a lot of what you began to recognize in your practice was the need to take the pressure off of parents. Yeah. Um, yeah. And those two ideas actually merge. follow follow from each other in, <laughs> yes, in, one, in one huge way, which is I think one of the most useful ways for parents to take the pressure off themselves is to is to kind of not watch and wait if they have concerns. You know, that has huge implications, much broader than it might sound. You know, obviously it's often terrifying to think that something might be going on that could need evaluation. And, you know, as parents, we kind of tend to worry about lots and lots of things, some of which maybe don't need so much attention. So worry is just part of being a parent quite often. And one of the easiest ways to take the pressure off yourself, scary as it may seem, because you don't want to hear whatever may come back, is at least getting the initial evaluation done. And I, you know, I talk about that a lot, for example, around ADHD, where, you know, you can think whatever you want about all the different evaluations and interventions, and we can talk about all that. And yet, separate from whatever you choose to do about it, there is huge power to just knowing what's going on, to just beginning to understand like, oh, this is a specifically a developmental delay in this self-management skills called executive function. And just to begin to understand the nuances of that and, okay, they're not trying to get my goat really intentionally. This is just ADHD, not just, but this is caused by ADHD. And so the information itself you know, is usually valuable or even, or hopefully going sometimes a lot of parents might get to go and have their pediatrician or whoever sees them say, you know, this is actually in the realm of typical development, you know, and this is how we can help with it. And all of that is a huge, huge step for parents, I think. So um, while there's room to watch and wait, obviously, I mean, kids are kids and they, they change it. Sometimes it's just worth the check-in if you're worried about it, because that can take a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. Well, and it would, well go ahead, Doug. <laughs> So what, what's coming up for me is that instant list of, you know, excuses that parents make. The biggest one I hear is I don't want my kid to be labeled, right? It's yeah. just sort of, so it's just sort of, why do they wait and watch? Elaine, were you going to go? Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is, is when parents come and say, my kid was just diagnosed, my response is always congratulations. Cause now you know what yeah. you're dealing with, but that, yeah, right. please address this <laughs> issue of labeling. And, and it, yeah. And it's actually, it certainly Mike's, I would say, you know, both I can answer both of you because the answer is very similar. You yeah. know, in terms of the the moment of diagnosis, you know, that's certainly my experience most of the time is that you know there is a, you know, I, I want to be really nuanced in my language, but it's it's not, you know, obviously it's nothing most people want to hear, but there's also a relief to knowing what's going on, and that's yeah. people often ask me about that about just the work I do, and I find that that's true most of the time. Yeah, and the thing about labels is that I think it's understandable fear that just doesn't turn out to be true most of the time. And I think you can look at it a couple of different ways, but the biggest one is that most of the time, if a child is struggling, most of the people working with them know that child is struggling. You know, so all those discussions are going on regardless. So there's a discussion about this child who's having difficulty regardless. It's not like you're, you know, they're it's hidden. And most importantly, at the point that you actually can describe what's going on, it's sort of 
becomes a more collaboratively working together to support a child as opposed to, you know, why won't that child pay attention or, you know, yeah. why is that child misbehaving on the playground or, you know, whatever concern is causing the stress at home or school, um, it sort of shifts everyone's relationship to it because in the end, it puts everyone on the same page. You know, no one's going to blame a child for having something like that. And then if they outgrow the label, you know, that's totally possible, even though I think people worry about that. So I think mostly the label actually gets rid of the judgment people are afraid of they're going to get by having the label in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then quite often it's, it's, you know, it's really required. One thing we didn't talk about, about just taking the pressure off yourself and, you know, just seeking help, like, is this typical development or not? Or what can I do about it or not? Is that for most challenges in early childhood, early intervention helps. So the sooner you, the sooner you get to it, the sooner you put supports in place, the sooner things get better. And that is true in general. You know, you, you don't need a diagnosis to get every support in place. And yet quite often you do. So, you know, for very specific reasons, it can be hard to avoid the label because it actually disrupts the sort of plan you want to get in place. So mm-hmm. you want, you know, the label really, you know, unfortunately it would be nice if we lived in a world where you can just say like, you know, without the label. The kids just, struggling with. Yeah. yeah. Let's, just do all the, let's just do all these things because it would be helpful. That would be perfect. But that isn't how the schools work. Generally speaking, yeah. you know, there's actually, you know, some states even have laws, for example, in New York, where you can get services for kids with autism if you make the diagnosis through your health insurance. So, you know, there, there are very specific and practical reasons the labels are needed also. Well, and we've done a lot. We've had a lot of conversations in the last year, I would say, Diane, about, you know, what we've noticed over the years in terms of access to services, you know, and we, we early on, we had parents who were like anything but an autism diagnosis. And now you have parents who are like, can I get an autism diagnosis? Because then I can get services, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm not saying that they're creative, like the problems are there, the challenges are there and the nuances are there. And, you know, when you have an explanation, what you haven't talked about yet, which I think is also relevant, is not only does it help the parents and the providers and the teachers approach that child differently, but it helps a child approach themselves differently. Yeah. Their self-conception. Right. Which is, you know, a much bigger conversation, you know, than we can even have here. But that's such a huge part of things is, you know, just learning to um, understand yourself in that way. And, you know, I've done a lot of work with the concept of self-compassion and learning self-acceptance and, you know, really recognizing that, you know, you are just the awesome person that you are. And, you know, this is part of it, whatever, you know, the, the it is, whatever the diagnosis is. Um, and we all well, have it in different ways, you know. Yeah. Well, and this is a bigger um, conversation, but I'm thinking about the parent and the physician relationship and the communication flow mm-hmm. and the information back and forth. Mm-hmm. Let's talk just a little bit about, you know, what, how can the parents best utilize the physician? How can the physician best, you know, utilize the parent? Where's that interplay between the two? Well, I think, you know, that's the foundation of all of it in many ways. You know, I think when you look at relationships between parents and their providers, providers and adult patients, all of it, a lot of it comes down, has to start with just communication and trust. And you can look at it from, you know, both sides of, I mean, hopefully it's one dynamic, but you can look at both sides. I mean, for, for physicians, for providers, it's really vital to understand someone's perspective on what's going on, not just the facts of what's going on, to understand someone's motivation about what's going on, because, you know, that's been studied. And I think it's often overlooked, like, you know, if you can really connect with someone on the level of helping understand, you know, what they believe about a situation and what's motivating them, you know, that helps come up with a plan that's going to work. You know, so that people are more likely to stick to. And then from a parent's side of things, 
you know, there's the practical side of it. And then there's more the emotional side of it. I think it's important to feel that you can trust your provider. I think there really should be a sense of open sharing because Mm -hmm. if this, especially in my field, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know if you're going to see somebody for knee surgery where they have to know everything about your emotional life, but you know, in my, you know, in a field where you're working with families, the more you know about that family is only going to help. And it also might be that you know, I do find often, for example, on ADHD that, you know, people bring up stuff in passing that they don't even know is ADHD initially, mm-hmm. you know, so they, they just mention that this challenge is going on, you know, during baseball games or around sleep or eating or all these things that ADHD can impact. But unless you're discussing it, you know, that, that doesn't, you know, we, we lose out an opportunity to even say like, hold on, let's step back a second, because that might actually relate to, you know, what we've been talking about last week. So I do think the goal should be, you know, on the one hand to, you know, really not holding back, just sharing all of it as much as, I mean, you can keep your family secrets, but within reason, sharing all of it. And then, the you know, related to that is it certainly can be helpful to try to be a little organized about it too. You know, and I guess I'm only saying that because there's a practicality to the average medical visit too of, you know, you have so much time. So, you know, one of the things I'm actually writing something right now with um, Stephanie Sarkis around this. And I know one of the things she's talking about is just, if you know, you're going to visit, take some notes ahead of time you know, organize your thoughts a little bit ahead of time. You know, if you're seeing someone regularly and you come out of a visit and you feel like, you you know, it wasn't urgent, but there's something else you wanted to talk about, you know, make a note to yourself, write it down. If there's a challenging situation, you know, this is clinical medicine where there's no yes, no answers. A lot of the time it's about trying to understand whatever the situation is, you know, saw someone this morning, just met him for the first time, was very intense school avoidance and clearly, you know, figuring out, some suggestions is going to involve a lot of trying to understand their perspective and the situations that led up to this. And, you know, so anything that just sort of provides that background context can be helpful. So, you know, a lot of detail can help. And sometimes it can just be done through take some notes and share them, take some notes so your thoughts are organized going into the visit. You know, anything that facilitates communication is healthy. And, and I also think related to that, you know, trust yourself too, if you need to say, I don't think I was heard here or this isn't, you know, I often bring that up when parents are working with therapists, like any good therapist. So, you know, I think sometimes when a therapist is working with a child, for example, there might be a stretch of time where most of the attention is on the therapy with, you know, the child and the parents can sometimes feel like they're not hundred percent sure what's going on. And the answer is always, well, you know, any therapist knows that that situation is possible. So go, go talk to them, talk ask to them, them what, just go, you know, that if they're good at their job, they're going to be comfortable saying like, oh, you know, this is the plan. This is progressing. This is not progressing, you know, but just, just put it all right on the table, I think. And that only helps with whoever you're going to be working with. Well, what I want to reinforce by what I'm hearing from you, and we kind of referenced this a little earlier before we started the interview was right. this notion of, of the role of the parent. So you were starting this conversation about the role of the provider, your mm-hmm. role in some ways is, you know, to navigate all of these different pieces and, right. and help the, help put the puzzle together as right. is the role of the parent very often. And when with a parent, it's all the more important to be transparent, to be open right. about what's going on, because you may not know that the information you have is useful information for the provider. Mm-hmm. And so part of the role of the parent is not to just understand and create an, you know, an accommodated environment at home, but also to be a, an effective reporter to the providers for the best treatment. Yeah, I, I think it's actually sometimes frustrating in my field that, you know, yeah. in, in that you'd wish there was a test for a lot of the things we're trying to sort out, but it's not, you know, it's still clinical medicine and it's all about looking for patterns of development over time. So the more a parent is able to, you know, help share that and just help bring some clarity, like, you know, whatever the detail might be, like, 
the, you know, he's been really, really anxious lately. But when I think about it, you know, and then you start telling some stories about the back history of like, yeah, maybe there was a little anxiety before this, and maybe this isn't mm-hmm. coming totally out of the blue and anything like that, that creates that bigger context is, you know, is really the heart of my whole field. You know, I always tell parents that by the, by the time we get started, you know, after the initial evaluation, we should really just feel like we're on the same page. You know, it's like, we, you should feel like I have an understanding of what's going on at home. You know, there's no single test we can rely on exactly. Well, and, and and just to kind of wrap up this conversation, I'm thinking about my own experience and, you know, four diagnoses, three kids. And if someone would have, that's all, (laughs) diagnoses, three kids, I'm lucky, I guess. But, you know, it's like this sort of, if somebody would have said, like, if somebody would have handed me the list of the things to watch for before I sat in the, in the room and tried to fill out the, is this going on? Is this going on? I would Mm -hmm. be like, I would have looked for it very differently sure. and I would have found it in a different space than, Oh wait, that's this. Oh wait, that's, Oh, that's how mm-hmm. they decide whether it's anxiety or ADHD. I mean, all that sort of stuff that if you're not in that realm as parents, we're not taught what to look for, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that's changing a little bit. I think the other thing you're saying that is probably useful too, is that you know, continuity helps a lot too. And I think that, sometimes gets lost in the shuffle also it's you know there's like a pressured moment when people you know it's like we got to come in because you know he's you know whatever big thing is going on failing a class or something but there's a lot to just getting to know someone also that can be really valuable because of just what you said it's like it's an opportunity for you know everybody to understand what's going on better the, the provider might be able to explain like you know between now and when i see you again you know watch for these few different things you know as a parent it lets you you know, ask follow-up questions, lets the provider get to know a child. And I mean, we haven't talked about the biggest challenge often is just logistics and cost, which is not, I mean, that's a problem with our entire, the system in our country right now, but within whatever's feasible, it's almost a type of well childcare, I think, you know, where, where, you know, hopefully your general pediatrician is doing some of that to begin with. And then if you have specific concerns, it's valuable to just try to get to know somebody, even if you're not seeing them often just using them regularly so that they can help you organize your thoughts. And you can talk about, Hey, let's, you know, for the next few months, watch for this in school. And that continuity also helps clarify a lot of things too. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to close this conversation as much as I'd love to keep going. I know that we've passed our time. So I know you've got a website with your books and your articles and your resources. How can people find find out more from you? Uh, Yeah. All my books and my new classes and everything else are uh, easily found at developmentaldoctor.com, which is all spelled out. Um, We'll have it in the show notes. Great. Thank you. That's, That's the simplest way to just find whatever might interest you. I have a whole pages just about ADHD information, autism information, mindfulness information, just to try to get people to useful sources that way. Great. Well, and Mark, we probably want to have you back and talk about mindfulness. I know that's your, that's your fun thing that you love to talk about. I do. And, yeah. and as we wrap up our conversation today, is there anything we've missed kind of in the vein of our conversation that you want to wrap us up with? You know, interestingly, what we didn't touch on, which I think I know you both feel really strongly about is, is part of taking care of ourselves as parent is just acknowledging the stress of all this and doing Mm -hmm. whatever we can to, you know, my favorite, like one line bit of advice I got going into, and I know I'm supposed to end with a quote and the quote I had come up with, because I thought we were talking about with a different topic was totally wrong. So maybe I'll just end. (laughs) So maybe I'll end with this quote instead, but it was really, really helpful to me. And it's not a famous quote. It was actually a friend of mine who was a year ahead of me who went to medical school before I did, although medical school isn't the point. Like we all, the point is that we all go through difficult times in life. And what she said to me was during the hard times, as bad as it gets, find one thing that keeps you sane. And no matter how busy you get, don't let go. And um, I have found that advice 
personally useful through many situations, you know, and uh, I use it all the time, like in the classes I teach for parents and doctors. And, you know, I think it's just an incredibly valuable way of approaching things like just. Are you willing to share what that one thing was for you? You you know, it was, you know, Elaine. It was ultimate, wasn't it? It was absolutely ultimate Frisbee. (laughs) For about 20 years, no matter how busy I got, I was always playing ultimate Frisbee. I would twist my schedule in knots to make sure I got out to at least play pickup once a week, you know, get myself to tournaments because that was it. That was like the mental break I needed to to stay strong those years. And it still would be if I could move like that, but I can't anymore. So I I just got to let you know that my brother's older than you are and he's still playing. He's now playing in the senior league. So, you know, my body, I'm (laughs) I'm jealous, but my body would not do that. All right, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for for what you're doing for for the service you provide for kids and their families and the parents. And it's always an an honor to be with you and learn from you and learn with you. And we really appreciate the collaboration that we've had with you over the years greatly. Well, thank you for, I mean, I could say the same back. Thank you guys all for all you're doing for everybody too. So I look forward to seeing you guys soon. Awesome. And thank you parents that are listening at the end of the day, you make the difference. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.